Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Unscripted. This is a interview series that we've been hosting here at Frontier Asset Management. The theme of this is slightly awkward conversations with brilliant investment managers. And now we find ourselves in the middle of a pandemic. So this is kind of an interesting time, I think, to talk to some of the fantastic stock and bond managers that we use in our portfolio. So as an introduction, I'm Jeremy Van Arkel. I'm a partner with Frontier Asset Management. We are, as you probably know, an industry-leading asset management firm, and we work with independent and insurance-based broker-dealers. One of my um, fortunate and unique benefits of my position here at Frontier is that I get to interview and talk with a lot of investment managers. And along the way, I meet some incredible people and I have some incredible conversations. And once you get to the filtering part of when we think a fund or a fund management group is is really good, they have gone through all our due diligence. So we're really down to what we think are the very best investment managers available in the industry. And, you know, not just in mutual fund space. I mean, I think the mutual fund space is probably the most competitive and to survive and do well there, you really have to be the very best of the best. And so by the time I get to have these conversations with people, I really find myself having conversations with some exceptional people. So I just wanted to share that, right, with the outside world here. There's a subtle second intention here is that, you know, we, we kind of live in a, in a world of indexing uh, where it feels like there's a lot of story and content and information about indexing. There is this whole other side of security selection where there are conscientious and diligent and experienced uh, investment professionals that have dedicated their lives to security selection. And uh, we wanted to kind of shine a light on that because we think that to achieve long-term success in security selection is rare. It's not easy. And when you do find these people, they're just pockets of brilliance, right? And they're real the kind of focused specialties. So just wanted to share that with the world. Once you start having these conversations with these managers, it's it's hard to think about building your portfolios without using some of them. In particular, maybe leaving your security selection to chance would feel a little more vulnerable. I do want to make a final note here before we get started. I do have some questions. I do have sort of a roadmap, but I'm going to try to keep this uh, unscripted and just have a conversation with our guests. They don't know what I'm going to ask them, but I will try to be kind to them. And before we jump in here, we do have to say our SEC disclaimer, which hopefully covers both me and the guest. This conversation does not constitute advice or recommendation or any endorsement of any specific investment, a security, mutual fund, or mutual fund company. Frontier Asset Management is not affiliated with any specific mutual fund company. None of this conversation should be in any way considered a recommendation from either Frontier Asset Management or our guest, Walthausen and Company and Walthausen Funds. With that, I'd like to introduce my two guests today. We have on the phone John Walthausen, who is the founder and president of Walthausen Funds. He has been managing portfolios in the small cap value space since 1994 and started his career as a portfolio manager at Paradigm Capital. Like many brilliant managers, went out on his own to start his own flavor of his security selection, which is Walthausen and Company. And then we also have Gerard Heffernan on the phone, who is a portfolio manager at Walthausen, and he was previously the portfolio manager for Lord Abbott Microcap Value and Lord Abbott Small Cap Value, funds you might be aware of. He's been managing portfolios since 1998. So this makes these two gentlemen on the phone here, one seriously experienced team in a very thin slice of the world, which is probably not getting a lot of press these days, but uh, this might be one of the most experienced small cap value teams that you'll find anywhere. So welcome to the call. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
This is a pretty unique uh, point in history. I'll start kind of light here. You know, it looks like the pandemic is heating back up. So are you in the office? Are you working from home? Uh, where are you guys located right now? Working from home and have been really since March. I, I have the clip on the edge of the Adirondacks looking out at a lake and, and enjoying the, the nature and sort of the eternal aspect and see how, how things continue to grow and prosper in spite of the pandemic and comfort that the world has. And Jerry, where are you located? I'm currently coming to you from Saratoga Springs, New York, comfortably uh, three and a half hours north of New York City, where we can both stay away from uh, what has been recently known as an epicenter, right. uh, but is also probably the uh, the center of group thinking in the, in the investment world. It's nice to be away from that, where uh, independent thinking can be uh, allowed to flourish. Well, it's interesting you say that because, you know, we, we search the country for actively managed security selection mutual funds, and we find a couple of traits in a lot of the managers or teams that we find. Is it was one is that a lot of times they're independent, and then two, a lot of times they're not in major cities. I've been really enjoying the pacing of the pandemic, right? So I live in Atlanta. I live right in the city, which is now becoming a, the second wave, I guess, you or the continuation of the first wave is it's really hitting the South. But the pacing of life has really become enjoyable. And I can now see that, you know, you might have that kind of pacing of life all the time up there in northern New York, <laughs> where it's not so much traffic and not so hectic. Things are a little slower, which is nice. You actually can have some time to think. You're not just frantic, you know. Okay, so I consider Walthausen to be an expert at understanding U.S. stocks, specifically probably value-oriented stocks, specifically small-cap stocks. And uh, we've been large investors in the Walthausen Small-Cap Value Fund for probably close to 10 years. You know, when I look at U.S. stock funds, there's thousands to choose from, literally thousands. I think there's a thousand large cap, and then you add the, all the other stuff in there. There's a lot of actively managed U.S. stock mutual funds. How would you characterize the unique features of your fund? I think the most unique feature is how we approach stock selection. We believe, first of all, the performance that you're looking for is generated by the companies that we invest in. So we need to understand those companies and understand whether they are organizations which are developing creating cash flow, reinvesting that cash flow effectively, and striving really every day to be better companies, better organized companies, working to ingratiate themselves, become more valuable to their clients. So it's that knowledge of the companies, and we approach it both from interviewing with management, but also digging deep into the accounting statements, understanding whether they really are generating that cash flow on a consistent basis, why they're generating it, and how they make their investment decisions themselves. That's it. And it's that intimacy that allows us to make better decisions. Jerry, you want to add something to that? or? Yes. The, you know, following what John says, it is really understanding the business and the management team. But if you don't go through the accounting reporting deeply, and understand it deeply, you won't truly know if there is a sustainable cash flow that's being generated by that business. And at the end of the day, a quality organization, organization that is going to be a winner going forward, is one that has the fuel of a sustainable cash flow to keep their engine primed and running at a high strength. You know, sometimes um, 
managers feel like they maybe have an edge. It's like they don't want to really say they have an edge or that they know something better than other people. Do you guys want to venture out and say, hey, there's a lot of you know U.S. funds, but this is kind of the one thing we know better than other people, or at least that we focus on and through you know really being a focused firm that there is sort of an advantage? Well, I think it is that knowledge of the companies that's important because, okay, something like the pandemic comes upon us without warning. In November, we had no way of guessing that this would happen. But in looking at the companies, we're trying to look at what they've done over the years, how management operates, and say which ones are going to be able to adjust rapidly to changing circumstances. Now, when we hit something like the pandemic, it does cause us to go back and say, well, these businesses can do okay through these ones are challenged. But we all say, which ones can we rely on management doing the right things here? So you take something like ABM Industries, which is janitorial supply, a lot in office buildings, a lot in schools and stuff like that. Oh, a terrible time for them. Oh, wait a minute. These are the people who've made the investment in the MIS systems, understand what their clients want, so they can come back with enhanced cleaning procedures and really come through this time quite well, while others would be faltering, not knowing how to deal with a change in situations. Right. That's a really good point. We kind of find that with mutual fund companies. So when we analyze mutual fund management teams, I mean, you're obviously analyzing the history of the, of the, of the management team and the security selection that they've done and the performance that they've achieved, but you're managing it over different outcomes. And we do kind of have faith that really good managers who have endured adverse outcomes before are more likely to endure the next adverse outcome. And that's probably kind of what you're saying is that, hey, if you've got this great business with great management and who are making active business management decisions, you know, you can't predict everything. But when bad stuff does happen, that they will hopefully make good decisions. Exactly. One of the analysts came up with this stock. It looks cheap. He said, but they've just done an acquisition and they have a new and the CFO has just left. Should I move forward? We said, no way. We have no idea what they're going to do. Jeremy, if I could uh, jump in on that, yeah. uh, I, I think part of what you're getting to the idea that you no, know, those who have been who have endured and persevered and found success are the ones that are more likely to be able to do that again the next time a challenge comes up. And I, I think a lot of what you're talking there can be brought down to one word, and that's culture. What is the culture of the company? What is the culture of the management team? And at that point, you're really talking about the people that are running the business. So we pride ourselves in in, in understanding the business. We pride ourselves in digging deep into the accounting to make sure we understand exactly all the dynamics that are taking place. But at the end of the day, people are running the business and we need to really understand who they are, how they go about their business uh, a lot of that can be found in in just understanding the incentive programs that uh, that the board is grading them on, the way that they have been forming uh, incentive programs for their teams, for their people, uh, and coming back to you know kind of how are John and I unique? There there are a lot of very smart peers of ours, but just like I could take any glass of wine and take a taste of it, 
I don't have that little extra something that can differentiate right. the different wines, different vintages. Uh, you put John and I together, you yeah. let us talk to a management team for a while. We will be able to tell you what is the flavor of the culture of that company. Are, yeah. are these guys winners or not? And that's something I think, I mean, like I, I say that all the time because we obviously we invest in actively managed mutual funds and we talk to management teams and people make the difference. People make the difference in every aspect of life, right? They you know, can make yes. your day or ruin your day. And so uh, people are very important. And I would imagine that, you know, if, if, if a fund were part of a giant complex of funds where there's sort of institutionalized processes and there's levels of analysts that it'd be really hard for a, an analyst to really push that knowledge up through the chain to the real portfolio managers, right? It, it takes a real hands-on specialty approach to get to know all those companies. So we're going to shift gears and, and maybe this will be a fun topic or maybe it'll be sort of a painful topic. Um, when I look at the current market this year, I'm flabbergasted. We're clearly looking at pretty bad state in the economy. The virus that caused the, the shutdown is still going on, if not getting worse. Unemployment looks terrible. Never seen anything like it. You know, GDP output, every measure looks like a 30% sort of reduction in the economy, somewhere in that range. And the stock market's sort of reaching for new highs. Stocks, bonds, real estate, everything reaching for new highs, holding those asset values high. And so what do you guys make of that? I'm sure you've talked about that around the office. You said no tough questions. It's, it's a tough one to, to understand. But you realize that the interesting thing about the markets is memories are not that long. We've been in a period since we came out of the Great Recession. So the market turned, if I remember correctly, in March of 2009. And it's almost been straight up since then with occasional dips. And investors, many investors whose history is a decade or less, have learned brutally that you always have to buy the dip, always buy the dip, always buy the dip. It's in late March, my son, who is a musician and has never showed the least interest in stocks, said, hey, Dad, should I buy stocks now? <laughs> Everybody says, I should buy stocks now. And I said, oh, okay, well, we're in the early stages of a very complicated meltdown. I'm not, I'm not sure that that's quite correct. Well, I guess he was right. And, you know, the word was go out and buy some stocks. And of course, the other aspect is with interest rates being pushed down so dramatically, I can understand if people think, well, this is the only way I'm going to make money by, uh, by investing. Uh, it seems premature. It seems particularly with the rate of infection heading back up and the risk of a, of a second wave in the fall, as well as the aspects of all the dislocation in the economy that are taking place, it does seem premature. It seems like there's some optimism out there for sure. You know, uh, everything that you said in your lead in there is absolutely correct. Uh, and, you know, if you talked about pandemic and said the S&P 500 uh, six months uh, into it would be off 5%, you think, well, that doesn't seem to make sense. Pandemic sounds a whole lot worse than that. There is a little bit of a similarity that I see here to what we experienced in the tech bubble, or at least leading up into the tech bubble as you you know, get into you know, 99 and the S&P 500 was up 20-some um, percent. However, I believe I have this data right. I have to go back to it. I think 
20 some percent of that return was accounted for by five stocks. And if you took those five out, the market was flat. Right. You know, you, you're like, you know, the, 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 the S&P 500's uh, down 5%, uh, 6% year to date. I'm looking at the Russell 2000. Now, just the Russell 2000 is down 15, 16%. Okay, that's a pretty decent chunk. I look yeah. at the Russell 2000 value and I see that down over 20% bear market. I'm going to respond and say, I know what those numbers are, but I'm still going to tell you that the preponderance of companies are down on the year. Many of them are down very big numbers. So there, you know, you, you do have to purview the, the whole market deeply to understand uh, where we are. In the age of indexing, the S&P has become the index, right? Like, so indexing and the S&P are synonymous. So that's what people are constantly focusing on the, uh, is the mm-hmm. S&P. And you made that great point that the six stocks in the S&P, if you take them out, the S&P is down pretty severely. And... Mm-hmm. The fan, uh, I've heard fan-anum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, F-A-A-A-A-N-M. And so yeah. um, you take them out and, and the market doesn't look good. And it does remind me of, I mean, there's a couple of characteristics of, of the year 2000 that really remind me of this. And that was the preponderance of indexing. You know, if you remember, like indexing was big. Nobody could keep mm-hmm. up. The NASDAQ was killing it, and there was very few stocks. The breadth was extremely narrow, and it just got narrower and narrower until there's nothing left. I mean, what's going to be left? I mean, so that kind of touches on that the second dichotomy, which is this growth in value, right? And so value is such a difficult subject because the guy that's buying Tesla at $1,000 a share, he thinks he's getting good value, right? It's more of an ethic than, than an actual investing concept, but of course, you know, we now have value type uh, indexes, right? And so there, it's a thing, you know, value is underperformed growth or growth is outperformed value. Is that really just because of the, the few growth names? Um, what is your take on the growth value difference this year? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I don't know whether you saw an article by Barb Arnott in May titled, you know, very cleverly, reports of values death may be greatly exaggerated. Yeah. And he takes apart that, that whole issue of growth versus value and coming up, even if we take out those those top half dozen stocks, the disparity between value and growth stocks has, has never been as great in the past 57 years. 57, I guess, being the number he came up with right. based on what the where data that he feels is strong enough is available. So that takes you through an awful lot of markets, certainly takes you through the breaking of the nifty 50 and breaking of the dot-com bubble. And it seems like we're in the midst of another dot-com bubble. You know, the trick is you can see they're overvalued just as, you know, a lot of commentators, you know, before the great recession pointed out that housing was way ahead of itself. That didn't mean that anybody pulled back from from yeah. those speculations. So uh, we can see it coming. We just can't put the date on it yet. Yeah. Well, you know, we saw the housing price. Co- I mean, the housing crisis was coming for three years. You know, and yeah, uh, and Bear Stearns went under in February, and the market didn't fall apart until October in '08. Mm-hmm. So, if things do take a little time, uh, I don't want that outcome. All right, so when I, I you know, I've I've heard many different takes on this growth and value difference. And one of them, one of the commentators was talking about the difference between higher quality 
businesses and lower quality businesses in a way that you would say, well, why are junk bonds severely underperforming AAA rated bonds, right? So it's a, so you could apply that sort of logic to the market, but that doesn't capture value. I mean, not all value stocks are businesses that need to be saved or helped or restructured or anything. They're not all distressed businesses. Well, that's right. I mean, I think one of the things that we find as we really research these companies in detail is that many of them are able to establish commanding positions in their marketplace where they can make the investments in getting ever more efficient. And because of a strong position in a discrete marketplace, they have reasonable control of their pricing. All those are things which are important factors for being able to get a return on invested capital, which is well in excess of their cost of capital. We would argue very strongly that the companies that we have in the portfolio are in fact high quality companies with good outlooks. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that's the difference between intimate knowledge and, and security selection where you get to pick and choose as opposed to buying a whole index. So you buy a whole index and you're, you know, on the value side, you're kind of a little bit in trouble, right? Because you've got some of the businesses that are severely impacted by COVID, like maybe some financials or transportation companies or oil businesses. And, and you know, you just take them all when you index value. That is true. I couldn't put it any better than that. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't, I think particularly on the value side, you, that would be an area that would take a lot of faith to just index it and say they're all the same. Okay. So, you know, the difference in performance isn't necessarily a quality issue. I, I don't believe that at all. Another, another take on it has been sort of that the COVID has accelerated new businesses versus old businesses. So that, you know, they say, well, tech is the future and everything else is the past. And, and to me, that's just such a broad brush as well. I think that's absolutely right, because we're still going to want to live in, in a house or an apartment. We're not going to live in a, you know, in a server. We're, we're going to want to be transported around by a car of some sort. So, OK, maybe they're going to be electric cars in the future. But then, you know, several of our stocks are significant suppliers to Tesla. If Tesla does well or other electric car companies, they'll do well. You know, the fact that COVID is changing the world, perhaps for good, suggests to us that people are spending more time at home. I don't know about you, but my wife has found a number of things that she feels should be changed in the house that we're in. That's where some money will go. That hasn't changed. If anything, it can accelerate. It's true. There are parts of the economy like retail, which are probably changed forever and will obsolete some companies out there. But there are plenty of companies that will prosper very well coming out of this epidemic and the recession. I think this is going to make big winners and losers. That's why you can't just say that all these businesses are the same. So which gets to a little bit of this indexing, right, which is all businesses the same. Just give me a basket of them. Do you see any evidence that sort of the wave of indexing is impacting or changing the way the market works? That's been sort of a concept that people have been talking about is, you know, well, if, if, if more than half the people index, does the market act differently? Is that an opportunity for security selectors or is that, you know, a detriment? It's very hard to know. I did talk to, you know, one reporter about some of our observations there and she said, well, you know, show me your data. The way I look at it is, okay, the mutual funds and other active institutional managers are reporting on a quarterly basis. And we see 
what the flows in and flows out. I know enough of these folks to know that they're not frantically trading between, during the quarter. They're moving in or they're moving out. And then you look at their actions compared to the total volume of stock trading that's happened in that quarter, in that particular issue. And you say, we as a group, active managers, are now minuscule part of the actual volume. Now, how much of that volume is index funds and ETFs seeing flows in and flows out? Or are you doing some trading to rebalance? Well, we're seeing strong evidence of a lot of retail speculation in, in the marketplace, what's driving it. So I think there's a lot of noise out there that's changing the dynamics of the market. Right. And that noise tends to kind of come and go. It's like you get, it seems, it feels like to me, you get waves of noise and then it sort of settles down. And, you know, that's like a shorter term thing, maybe. It can certainly change the time period in which events take place. You know, as an active manager, news comes out and you digest that news and you review your thesis on any holding you have with that news. And if it changes the story, you're going to act, you're going to move. However, with the growing balance of index funds, of passive funds, that news will come out. And as long as that company is part of the index and its weighting is supposed to be held at a certain level, any flow that comes in that day is going to be put into that stock regardless of what the news is, be it good or bad. So the size of the index passive group within the market, it certainly feels to have changed the time period and the way individual stocks react to news, react to items. It's probably a, a big source of all the white hair that I have, um, but it's also, you know, it, it requires a different level of patience and a different level of understanding today than it did, say, 20 years ago. It's interesting. Yeah, it's always changing, right? The game the game board is always changing here. Yes, it is. All right, let's do some fun stuff. You guys want to talk about stocks? Any particular companies you want to sort of highlight? Any interesting stories in your portfolio or <laughs> or even companies you might want to that you don't own that you want to talk about, right? I, I love talking about Tesla yeah. stock. I think it's just defies everything I've ever learned about investing, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> do you, do you want to go first, Jerry? Sure. I think a good example of a company that we own that is the type of thing that we are looking for is a, a company called Great Legs Dredge and Dock. Okay, we're not going to learn earn any marketing razzle-dazzle awards for a uh, great and sexy name. And not only that, I, I don't think they've done anything on the Great Lakes in quite some time, so it's, it's even confusing at that point. But Great Lakes Dredge and Dock owns dredging equipment, and they will do very large dredging that will take care of major ship channels, be able to keep them in a, in a proper operating order, or as we've experienced over the last uh, decade with the widening of the Panama Canal and ever larger car, uh, container ships being built, a requirement for a number of these major ship channels to actually be deeper. Uh, so the, just the deepening projects uh, also with uh, storm damage and uh, beach erosion, uh, you give a, a, a lot of uh, reestablishment projects that are uh, constantly taking place. Um, this is a company that John and I both have known for probably close to 10 years. And about four or five years ago, 
a much needed event took place, which was uh, new management and a new culture to the management. And the, and the culture being that, yes, we are an asset heavy business, but we have to be in the business of making returns, not in the business of making sure every boat has a job. Because when you're only worried about every boat having a job, you're going to take business at prices that don't provide adequate returns. And it required a change in mindset, a change in approach to the company as a whole. And with the current CEO, Lassa uh, Pedersen, coming in and really making that change, we were able to see the change coming. We were able to understand from many discussions with Lassa how he was going to go about things and how that was different. That combined with a period of some major storms that required some uh, really uh, extensive uh, beach uh, improvement, barrier island uh, buildup. Also, the government agencies, whether it be the Army Corps uh, or the Harbor Fund, getting renewed um, support from the uh, regulatory legislative uh, arms. So, you know, those things all came together, but it was a matter of knowing the company, understanding the business, and recognizing how the change in culture was going to bring about a change in the business. It's as often will be the case with our investments. Things started out slow. It didn't seem to be uh, doing much for us, and we received a number of questions on it. But once the market finally recognized what we had already seen, uh, it's gone on to be a wonderful investment for us and a, a company that we are still holders of. I want to chat about Albany International. It's a company I've known for a long time. And it's interesting how a company with the good quality, good quality management and some interesting technology can develop. Their expertise is in what's called uh, paper machine clothing. So when you watch paper being made, they're dropping a slurry on a, on a slightly porous, what to a novice looks like a, a belt, which gradually squeezes the water out while it's dry. But that's a fairly complex, and as the machines have gotten bigger, Albany's been able to increasingly technically dominate that business. But the beautiful part is that in that they learned a lot, increasingly about how to design materials using 3D weaving. They've taken that, which is almost impenetrable, which is aircraft parts. If you look at the aircraft manufacturing business, if you're not a known qualified supplier, it's incredibly hard to get in there. And they were introduced something to replace metal parts with basically plastic parts. So it's it's the, the resin fibers that they have with baked into a resin material using the fibers, taking some some materials out of it. When I first heard that they were doing that, I thought, this is this is totally crazy. It's going to be so tough to get your costs down to where they should be and be qualified. But they cleverly JV'd with Safran, the French uh, engine manufacturer, and did a deal where basically it was a cost plus contract for the life of that engine, but allowed them to take their success and go into other other parts for other manufacturers. And so they're continuing to build that business very nicely. At the same time, they're taking their traditional business and saying, we're just gonna concentrate on the most technically challenging part. We're not gonna try to grow our sales over there. We're gonna stay on the 
very large, very fast-moving machines moving away from the parts of the business like newsprint, which are declining and technically fairly easy to. So they, they're continuing to move their margins up and continuing to grow into a, to a new market. In spite of all that interesting stuff, it still trades, as it always has, as a, uh, as a value stock. I love it when I get to the stock story part because I'm always amazed that I hear about these companies I've never heard of. And I think that they, you know that is the sort of the spirit of security selection is really finding those unappreciated businesses, right? You know, while we're on the business of the portfolios and the markets, is there anything further you'd like to add if we were to sum this up here? Anything? Well, I think that the stocks that we talked about address that overall question with small cap value doing so poorly in the last decade or even more relative to other markets, people have to say, are these companies that are going to go out of business? And the answer is no. These are companies that are evolving as we do it in ways where they can return capital to the shareholders, either through growth or dividends or share buybacks. And so they will prove to be good investments over an extended period of time. Yeah. And it's a different, you know, I think value's kind of taken on this old world sort of connotation and it, that's, that's, you know, there's a whole different lens of looking at value investing, which is these are unappreciated, misunderstood pricing opportunities. That's what a value investor looks for, right? Exactly. That's true. You know, Jeremy, if I, w- I would go back to a topic that you brought us on to, which is the idea that the groups who have been through adversity have been tested and have come through it. They're the ones that have some scars, but they're also, uh, they're also the survivors. It's very easy for an investor in a period like this to throw up their arms and say, oh, the heck with it. This isn't working. I'm going over there. Yeah. I'm tired of being the only one at the cocktail party who yeah. doesn't have a uh, a great tech stock story to tell. John and I have been many, many rounds in this fight. I, I remember some wonderful value portfolio managers retiring right before the tech bubble burst. Uh, they threw up their hands and said, you know what? I I don't get this anymore. I don't understand it. What's worse is the manager that doesn't tell you that and just starts making the change while still having their their old name or still saying they right. that's what I do but they you know they're they're trying to to hold on and I remember when both of those things happened in in 2000 there was mm-hmm. firms that just switched their stripes without telling anybody and then there were longtime managers that just quit yes you know this much even better than I do proper uh, investment allocation uh proper distribution amongst the different asset classes, uh, it requires discipline. It requires leaning against the wind. I mean, to maintain a balance means you have to be selling what has been successful and buying what has not under the understanding that every pool has its, uh, you know, it has its sunny days and has its rainy days. And you have to be ready for that. The small cap value effect, I strongly believe is going to continue to be in effect. However, if you do look at the returns historically, while small has won over large and small value has won over you know, most over the extended time periods, it has a tendency to make those gains in a very short period. So you may have five years of growth beating value, but you'll have 
two and a half years of value beating growth, but it beat it so substantially that it holds the lead through that entire cycle. It's also saying if you're not there at the beginning, you'll miss it. So you have to be disciplined with your allocation levels and, and stay on top of it. Uh, but now I'm dangerously close at, sell, at, at telling you what to do in your job. So I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> one, of the, one of the really hard parts about this business is we have to go forward. We don't get to go backwards. And you have to be there before it happens. This is really great. I, I really appreciate you guys being on the phone here. So as a, a reward or further torture, uh, we're going to do a speed round. And this speed round is going to be a little bit uh, non-businessy, I guess you could say. It's my coronavirus speed round. So all of this is going to apply to your current situation. So either one of you can answer or you can chime in. And uh, so here we go. We'll start with the first question. Mask or scarf? Or mask. 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 Yeah, I've got one of those neck things. That's what I've been wearing lately. But, you know, it's summer down here and it's kind of hot. So the second, you know, I've been doing a lot of video calls. This is what feels like the earthquake moment for video chats, right? So are you guys webcam or no webcam? I'm behind the time. I didn't I didn't even realize that this was a webcam uh, option. I just assumed it was like every other conference call I've been on. <laughs> totally webcam. And I'll tell yeah. you what, very excited about it because as much as uh, I enjoy the being away from the kind of the insanity of the major cities and, and all that's going on there, um, the development of familiarity and comfort with the Zoom call is going to be a long-lasting addition to our research effort in talking to management teams and actually being able to see yeah. them when we talk to them. So yeah. uh, I'm actually very excited about this uh, just from a research standpoint going forward. Oh, it's a huge like – the, the people that adopt this are going are, are gonna to have huge gains, I think, in efficiency. We talked about it post 9-11 but the technology wasn't there. It's there now. And it's also a gain in your lifestyle. You know I mean? Like I was talking to airline, an airline professional and he's like, if this video stuff sticks. Yes. You know, I know where you're going. Yeah. Be that'd be tough. a challenge. Yeah. All right. So when we go to work here in our houses and we don't have our webcams on, are we wearing a tie, a collar, a t-shirt or sweats? It's a low cost shirt for me. Yeah, this is this is dress up. But yeah, I've been I've at work now. I've got a knit shirt on with, yeah, with a, collar. a collar. That's yeah. fancy. I've been I've been primarily collarless. Collarless, yes. Yeah, so, so that is also going to be, I think, a change. I think it's going to stick. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, all right. So, uh, I'm definitely having a hair challenge during this. And because uh, I'm actually really kind of cautious about this whole COVID thing. I'm not, say, uh, brazen about it. So I use if you have to have your hair cut at home, like myself, are you scissors or clippers? My wife is very good with the scissors. Yeah, I, I must admit I have a uh, reasonably strong level of vanity in regards to my hair. At one time, uh, probably around 18, 19 years old, I had a girlfriend who was looking to become a hairstylist. And that event taught me to always pay a professional for my hair. <laughs> <laughs> 
and I have stuck by that. So I am uh, just a lot of hair product holding it back right now. <laughs> yeah, mine's gotten a little out of control, and my uh, my daughter has been doing the hair adjustments in our house. So, um, all right, is this baseball hat or no hat? John? If we're going out, because I'm a pale person, and it really is summer up here, yeah, I wear a hat with a brim over, but definitely a hat. Yes, definitely a hat. Yeah, I'm hat almost every day. I just, I can't, I mean, I can't, it's, it's almost like I want to buy a hat for every employee in the company just in case they have to get on a video call and they could just pop it on at the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So we are a little cooped up. Uh, indoor or outdoor exercise? Both. Both? Yeah. Yeah, definitely yeah. both. I have found myself exercising more, I think, than ever before in my life. At least for me, a positive side effect. That's good. So, uh, all right. When you're not exercising and you have to get around, are you a electric car, a classic car, a normal car, or what in the world do I do with a car? Uh, I'm a regular car. When I was in the army, a guy had a Volvo and he didn't know what the hell to do with it. So uh, for about a hundred bucks, I got a Volvo that took me for, for a number of years after that. Yeah. I, I think as a value investor, it's like, it's part of your persona is you just got to have kind of a... A normal older car. Yeah, yeah we, we have a, I have a normal older car, but we also uh, purchased a house very close to town. So honestly, I probably do more miles walking than I do in the car at this point. At dinner time, but, is it Brave the supermarket, pick up at the restaurant, or is it DoorDash? It's call ahead and curbside pickup. My fiance and I have been grocery store and farmer's markets now that the weather has gotten warmer. We're real big on the farmer's market and the uh, wonderful fresh produce offerings that we have up here in upstate New York. This is another sort of unintended consequence is that I've actually been eating less and better. Uh, I don't know if it's having a little more free time on my hands, a little less busyness and franticness that I can have a little more time to focus on that or, um, but it's become a priority for sure. And I'm definitely pick up if we take out because the delivery stuff, it just shows up like a pile of goo in a box, you know, it's never <laughs> <Yeah>. good. <laughs> you know? So, and it's expensive. Yeah, it gives you that real, yeah. You know, was it, was I enjoying this restaurant? Was I eating this? Yeah. Stuff? Yeah. And, and there's certain flavors that work, right? You can't, it's hard to get like Mexican or Italian taken out. It's like, by the time you get it home, it's like, what did I even order? <laughs> so, all right. My final question, hopefully this one will be a little more fun. So are you cable Netflix or prime? All three and, and sitting here worried saying, cause I, I know from friends that production on all these things stopped in March. We're running towards the end of their inventory. It's all August. I feel you. <laughs> what about you, Jerry? Well, being a true value guy, I uh, I find the cost of cable TV to be obscene. So we do not subscribe to cable television. We're purely uh, internet-fed video, ah. uh, and uh, we will use uh, Netflix. Uh, we do have a Prime account. That's how we do all of our video entertainment. All right. Well, this is perfect for my follow-up. So on Netflix, Tiger King or Ozark? Embarrassed to have enjoyed watching Tiger King up to a moment. And yeah, honestly, haven't watched Ozark. I watched the first 15 minutes of Tiger King and just said, no way. I am not. My brain cells have a limited life and they're not going to be wasted on this. Uh, I, I've, I've enjoyed the beginning of Ozark, uh, but I uh, have not been able to, uh, to, to persist with it. Yeah, that's a, that was filmed here in Atlanta. 
but yeah, that, that we're all guilty of the Tiger King thing. We all kind of took a bite of that, right? <laughs> I waved it near my nose, and uh, I got a little smell of it, and that was yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jerry Heffernan and John Walthausen, managers of the Walthausen Small Cap Value Fund, thank you so much for your time. This has been fun for me. Hopefully, it was fun for you. A lot of fun. Thanks. Yeah, we might have to do a, a version two here or a follow-up. I really appreciate all that you do. I, I appreciate your art form. I respect your art form. Keep doing your art form. Keep uh, working hard for us for our portfolios here at Frontier as well. So. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate you being on this. Hopefully, we'll catch up soon. Love to do yeah. version two. Thank you very much. Thank you for uh, being interested in what we have to say. It's yeah. been a pleasure working with you. Yeah, absolutely. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, guys. Okay. Bye.